to where the chaos is? How do we find ways to be gentle where so many are uh, abrasive? And I think the question we have to ask, that we want to ask, because we want there to be an answer to it, is, is there a limit to who I have to make peace with? Are there some people that I just get like a peace pardon from? That I just go to God and I say, God, you, you've met them, right? And you know them, you knit them together, and I'm not going to say you did it wrong, but come on, God. You don't mean that I have to make peace with that person over there, right? You don't mean that, that I've got to go to this person over here that's been a jerk to me, that has taken advantage of me, that has hurt me over and over again, and, and be a peacemaker with them, because that feels bad to me. They're part of a group of people that doesn't like me. Why do I have to like them? They started it. I'm, do I get a pass? Are there limits to who we have to uh, make peace with? Do we have to make peace with those who want to wage war with us? Or who want to get us fired? Or who want to divorce us? People who want harm for us or who disagree with us? And that's a big one, isn't it? There's a few years back, uh, there was a politician who said that the only remaining acceptable form of prejudice in our world today is with people who disagree with us. Uh, there's some truth to it, isn't it? Now, I'm not going to tell you who the politician is who said it, because some of you would immediately dismiss it because you don't agree with anything this person says, which ironically proves the point. <laughs> and so we want to know, are there some people who are outside of this? Are there, Jesus, can we ask you, surely this peacemaking stuff doesn't apply to everybody? And we can ask Jesus that because he answers that question in Luke chapter 6. He says, but to you who are listening, I say. So this is only to those of you who are willing to listen to Jesus. To you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to anyone who asks you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is tough. This is tough. This is not an easy teaching. To those of us who, who live our lives without much, we don't give much thought to enemies. We don't give much thought to people who wish harm and violence for us, but some of us do. Some of us have someone in our life that is actively working to, to bring harm to us. 
to, to hurt us. But Jesus teaches, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That feels bad. It feels bad. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And when he says to pray for them, I think this is, there's an old Irish prayer uh, that goes something like this. And maybe you might think, well, this is praying for them, right? May those who love us love us. And those who don't love us, may God turn their hearts. And if he doesn't turn their hearts, may he turn their ankles so that we may know them by their limping. (laughs) That's praying for our enemies. They're in the prayer, and it's helpful because it allows us to identify them more readily. And I don't think it's what Jesus had in mind. I think when he tells us to pray for our enemies, I think he wants us to pray blessing over them. And that's hard. There are many of us who in the past year have prayed for the good of Ukraine. But it's harder to pray for the good of the aggressor, to pray for the good of those who wage war, to pray for Russia. But we're supposed to pray for those who wish harm on those we care about. How many of us uh, enjoy praying uh, regularly for the prosperity and influence of our favorite political party's leaders? But it's a harder thing in the world that we live in today to pray blessings for the other party's leaders. But Jesus calls us to pray for those who disagree with us and who don't want what we want and, and, and who we perceive as enemies, whether they are or not. How many of us have ever gotten fired from a job and, got, and began praying immediately for that next job? But how many of us in the midst of praying for the new job also prayed that God would bless the person that fired you? That's a tougher thing. This teaching is not an easy one. This is hard. It's hard stuff. And the work of peacemaking is always easy with those who love us because we love them too. And Jesus points out, like, listen, I get that you're going to love the people that love you, but that's no credit to you. Sinners do that. A lot of times we kind of get this idea that Christians are just better at relationships and they're better with their friends and they're just, just take the kind of family member I am and go one level up and being a better dad, better husband, better employee. But it's not just being better at the relationships that sinners are good at. You can be a sinner and have no relationship with Jesus Christ and be a perfectly good and moral employee. But there's something else entirely to this Jesus way of peacemaking that calls us to treat our enemies radically different because sinners don't do that. There's no reason they should. It's, it's, a, it's so counter to the way of this world and the way that we live that the only reason you would do it is if Jesus has given you an example to follow in doing exactly this in a way that changes the world. And Jesus does believe that this this radical peacemaking with loving our enemies is part of the way that Christianity and the kingdom of God will break the brokenness of this world. This is, this is prescriptive. This is how he wants us to go about doing this. And so he says, it's not just about doing good to those who do good to you. That's easy. That's easy. If you forgive someone who's forgiven you so many times, you're not doing a hard thing. That's the easy level of peacemaking. 
But God, but God, if I'm loving people who hate me and doing good to those who are awful to me, then how will I ever get repaid in return for this? Isn't there a chance that I'll forgive them and I will look out for them and that I will, will do all of this and that they won't appreciate it or give me anything back in return? And I believe that when we look at Jesus' not only answer here that we've looked at in the text, but his life, I think God has two answers for us. And the first one is this. Listen, if you give to them and they don't repay you in the goodness you extend to them, don't worry about it. I can settle that tab. God says, I've got a reward in store for you for paying out goodness, for paying out love, for paying out forgiveness to those who are your enemies. They may never pay you back, but don't worry about it. I can settle the check. Because God's got a reward that is so much bigger and greater and better than what that person ever could repay us. That He says, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. You don't have to worry about it. I'll settle the check, even if they don't. So you just keep giving and blessing. I'll take care of it in the end. And the second answer that God has in store for us is this. Uh, yeah, this is a tough thing to ask you to do, but this is the family business. You want to call yourself children of God? You need to remember that the only reason you can make the claim that you're a child of God is because my son came and died on the cross for you while you were yet my enemies. He died on the cross for you. I'm asking you to forgive and love your enemies. He died on the cross for you while you were still my enemies so that you might become the children of God. And now you're in here and you're saying, I don't think I want to forgive that person. Have you met them? God says, no, no, no. I am loving and merciful. My son is loving and merciful, and he didn't wait till you had your stuff in order to get on the cross to die for you. He did it while you were still my enemies. And so if you want to claim to be one of my children, you've got to start by being like my son and your brother. Because your brother sets the ultimate example in how we do this. And he does it by loving his enemies, including you, until you became my sons and daughters. You became his brothers and sisters. And now you're invited to the family business. And the family business is loving and forgiving when it's still hard. When it's with the people that I don't want to. And so in the kingdom of God, what you need to know is that the limits of peacemaking are not here in my family and friends. It's not here with the people that I generally am like and get along with. That in the kingdom of God, the limits to the peacemaking efforts that God calls us to do in the world are here. They're there. They go out into the world and into the darkness and into the enemies and into the places where people don't like us. And it gives them the gift of goodness and forgiveness when they aren't doing anything to deserve it and may never pay us back. Why do we do that? Because Jesus did first. And God wants us to get in the family business of continuing to do it. Because it changes the world. Jesus says that he wants his kingdom to be like salt and light. That it gets out and it just becomes contagious everywhere it goes. And it just changes and transforms. If we're willing to do the hard stuff of peacemaking, we can be the salt and light that helps us to be uh, the kingdom 
in the world that helps goodness and love and forgiveness to break through the anger and anxiety that has become a cancer in our culture. But it's not easy. You can't just love the easy people. You've got to love the hard ones. Even if they can't pay you back. How do we do this? How do we even begin to do this kind of work and ministry? Uh, we're going to get kind of practical here. We're going to get into the things that we have to do if we're going to do it, the biblical things that we do to become peacemakers in the world. Because we, if we do this, we can continue to transform the world that we live in. And we're going to start with the four G's. Four G's not just for cell phone service. We can change the world with four G's. The four G's of peacemaking. The first one is that we glorify God. We're not peacemakers for our glory and our benefit. We're doing it for God's glory. Because when we make peace where there was once chaos and conflict, God is glorified. The second one is that we've got to get the log out of your eye. We'll get into this more a little bit here in a second. We're going to go through each of these. The goal is to gently restore. Okay? Um, our job is not to go yell at everyone how wrong they are in hopes that we will just persuade them through our arguments that, are, that they're wrong and we're right. No one is changing anyone's mind with meanness today. And so if we're going to do this, our goal is to gently restore people to relationship with us and other and to pursuing goodness and not harm in their life. And the fourth G is that we go and be reconciled. That when there's someone that we've had a personal conflict with, we've actually got to go do the work of making it better. And we do it all to glorify God. Here's how each of these work. Uh, in James 3, 17 and 18, James is giving uh, practical teachings to the church. And here's what he says. He says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. There is this nature of being peace-loving and peacemakers that brings about righteousness in us, and it, and, it, and it does bring God glory. We bring glory to God when we share with others the wisdom and forgiveness and compassion that He gives to us. There's the teaching that Jesus has of getting the log out of your eye over in Matthew chapter 6. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of my favorite passages about relationships and being better at things that we so often struggle with. Jesus is teaching on this, and he says um, in Matthew 7, starting in verse 3, I'll go up to verse 1. It won't be on the screen, but, but you, can, you know the text. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The world loves quoting this passage to Christians. Anytime we go to them and we have these four G's of peacemaking and we're trying to gently point out the error of their ways, when we're trying to get a relationship with, with someone that's in the world and not in the kingdom of God and we want to confront some of the things that they have going wrong, and we say, listen, God has something better for you. God wants you to follow His way and not the world's way. And they say, didn't Jesus tell you not to judge me? And that if you judge me, he'll judge you? Kind of. But let's see what else he says after that. 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, then all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What's the purpose of this whole passage? It's getting the speck out of your brother's eye. The goal is to go to someone who has a problem and help them resolve it. Go to someone who's making a mistake and help them to fix it. Go to someone who's got a vision issue in seeing what God wants them to see and help them to change it so they can see God's way, not the world's way or their own way. It's about loving confrontation. But so often the world stops at the don't be a hypocrite. You've got a plank in your eye. Leave me alone about my problems. And so there's two extremes that we have when it comes to this text. One is that we as Christians say, until I am perfect, until I get rid of every piece of dirt in my eye, I can't go talk to you about any of your problems. And so I'm just going to leave you in your junk until I've got it all figured out. And so the fear of the plank in my eye keeps me from lovingly helping you fix yours. It's not what's going on here. That is too much humility. That is too much of feeling inadequate. That is too much of not feeling like God's given me something that can help and be a blessing to you in your time of, of, of eye problems, sin problems, addiction problems. And the other extreme uh, is that, that, that we tell the world, uh, hey, listen, hypocrites are the big problem, and so Christians shouldn't judge each other. Christians shouldn't you know, get the plank out of your own eye. And, and so on either extreme, we're, we're stuck in inactivity and helping each other. What this passage is saying, what Jesus is doing here is saying, if you're the kind of person that makes a habit out of trying to walk in step with God's way, if you're the kind of person that's willing to do self-evaluation of your problems, and, and as you're going, when you've got a problem, you try and get it out of the way and fix it, then you're the kind of person that can help others do that too. Not once you're perfect, not with judgmentalism, but as someone that can say, hey, I see you've got a problem in your life. I've got problems in my life. I'm working on them. Can I help you work on yours? And together, we get closer to Christ-likeness. And so you have to be the person, who, not who's perfect, but who's willing to be a self-analytic person, who's willing to work on yourself so you can help you and help God work on others. That's, that's a whole sermon. I can't stay there. There's more G's to get to. The goal is to gently restore, right? Uh, later in Matthew 18, he talks about how uh, you go and confront them first with one and then with two or three and then with the church. And, and you start with the most gentle measures possible. If you got a cut on your finger, you start by medicating with a Band-Aid, not by amputation, right? So often in, in the church, when we get a conflict with someone, we jump to amputation and throw the finger out. Start with the Band-Aid. If that works, you've done it. Neosporin is the second step. The third one, if it goes bad, you lose the finger, I guess. I don't know. It's a bad metaphor. <laughs> but I think it exposes that we so often jump to extreme measures, not starting with the most gentle things with an, an intention of restoring you. And we do it not so, and this is important, when I get in conflict with you and I want to win the day, my goal is for you to be one, 
not for me to be the winner. I don't, my goal in conflict is not to step on you so I can lift myself up. My goal is to come down to where you are so I can help pick you up. That's the goal, is gentle restoration. And the fourth G is this, is that you go and be reconciled. Doing the work. Instead of accepting premature compromise of just like, fine, whatever, we'll do it your way. Let's get out of this conflict. No, get out, you know, do the work. Allowing relationships to wither. Fine, yes, I forgive you. Can we move on? I'll just sit on the other side of the, tor- the auditorium from now on. There's two entryways. I'll use the back one. No, not taking easy way outs. We must actively pursue peace and reconciliation. Forgiving others as God forgave us through Christ. We seek mutually beneficial solutions to our differences. We put in the work. And sometimes that means me going to you and trying to help you work on stuff, but sometimes I've got to admit my problems. So now we need the seven A's of confession. There's not scriptures to these. We're just going to go through, and you're just going to have to trust me that these are good biblical ideas. The seven A's of confession are this, address everyone involved. Whoever is involved in this particular conflict, you go to all of them and you say, I messed up. I messed up and I need to take ownership of my part in this problem so that we can restore the relationship and and our community and our unity within this community. You avoid if, but, and maybe. Okay, this is important. If I offended you, I'm sorry, is not a real apology. If I did something wrong uh, means that I'm still open to the possibility that I was right, but for the sake of you not being mad at me, I'll just throw out the possibility I was wrong and just apologize for, for the possibility. But you and I both know I was really not as wrong as you think I am, but I want your feelings out of the way, so if I was wrong, I'm sorry. Get the if out of there. Own your part of the problem. And if you give an apology and stick a but at the end, uh, you actually only mean everything after the but and nothing before it. Get the buts out of your admissions. It's the but out principle of apologizing, right? Get it out of there. Because we all know that and it ends up just restarting the fight. Get the maybes out of there. Maybe I should have done something differently. I can't think of what it would be. uh, But hey, I'm sorry. Own it. Let them know. And if you're not ready to own it, go do some reflection. Get some advice from other wise people. Figure out what your part of the problem is and own it completely and confidently. And then admit specifically what it is that you did wrong, which shows that you understand it, not just that you're trying to say what gets you out of it. Acknowledge the hurt that it caused. It's not just about what I did wrong. It's what it did to you and your emotions and in your feeling of adequacy and your trust and safety in this relationship. I acknowledge that. That acknowledgement goes a long way in rebuilding trust. Accept the consequences. This one, there's not all mistakes get immediately fixed by an apology. Uh, there's a, 
I, I, suddenly I'm flashing back to the uh, great scene in the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, where the criminals on the road uh, have a, a, find their way into a revival and he gets baptized and he gets out of the waters and he comes up and he says, this is great. We don't have to keep running from the law anymore. I've done been forgiven. And George Clooney's character says something to the effect of, yeah, the good Lord might forgive you, but I'm not sure the state of Mississippi is quite as uh, forgiving as the good Lord is. So we're going to keep running. They haven't uh, fully admitted their responsibility and accepted the consequences, have they? Some mistakes have consequences even after we own up to it. You need to alter your behavior. Now, one of the things I say in my house sometimes is stop making excuses for what you've done in the past and start improving what you're going to do in the future. I'm way more interested in you learning from this than you uh, telling me why you did what you did. I, let's move on. Let's get, and mostly with my kids, I don't lecture my wife that much. It doesn't, I would have to go to the first A and start with my own stuff, right? Um, alter your behavior. Learn from your mistakes and be better. And then ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. Say, listen, I've, I've really done this work. And if you go through those first six A's, the likelihood of getting the forgiveness that you desire is way, way higher than if you only go through three or four of these. And certainly if you go through none of them. The seven A's of confession. And when you get to forgiveness, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and I wanted to bring it back, the four promises of forgiveness. So when forgiveness is on the table, what does that actually mean? Because so often in forgiveness, there's still woundedness. There's still memory. There's still a, a, a reminder that something broke in the relationship in the past, and it has echoes in the future. But what does forgiveness mean as I'm chasing that? Do I have to get to the point that, that when you say, uh, I need your forgiveness, that I say, for what? I've already forgotten it. If that's the standard, uh, it's, that's not really what we're aiming for. So what does good biblical forgiveness look like? It means these four promises. I will not dwell on this incident. I will no longer let it eat me up at night. I will no longer let it be the first thing I think about in the morning. I will begin releasing it from my obsessive thoughts. I will no longer dwell on it. I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. Now listen, there's limits to some of this. If there's violence in the home, uh, then, then you need to talk to someone about it. There's limits to some of this. Uh, if, there is, if you're in a helping relationship with a counselor or someone else who's helping you work through situations in your family, you're going to want to talk to them about this because they're going to help you get to the point that you can have some of the healing that your relationships need. But you're sharing at that point, you're sharing it with someone else with the purpose of pursuing health, not the purpose of pursuing harm. I will not share what you did in the past that I've forgiven you for with others in a way that is gossipy and malicious and is intended to demean you in their eyes. That's the difference. That's what we're talking about in that promise of forgiveness. And the fourth one uh, is this. I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Do you still remember what happened? Yeah. But is it still causing harm in your relationship? No. You've given forgiveness. Is it always easy? No. 
Do we pray for that person when it's hard? Jesus told us to. Do we love them even when they intend harm for us? Jesus told us to. Is there a limit to who falls in that range? of? Who, is there someone that I don't have to pray for? Is there someone that Jesus didn't die on the cross for? Because if there is, you can skip them. But if there isn't, then they're worthy of your prayers of their blessing. And they're good. And that is hard. That is not an easy thing. And so the question has to be asked, how can we do this hard thing? And I want to tell you right now that by yourself, you cannot do it. If you're just going to depend on your ability to, to pursue this kind of peacemaking and confession and, and this kind of, of goodness and this kind of love and this kind of, uh, of, of forgiveness, you're going to need God to do it. So in Galatians, there is this promise that for those who are willing to live life by the Spirit, God's going to give us the things that we need. The fruit of the Spirit. And think about these fruit. By fruit, I'm not talking about an apple or an orange, right? The kids saw We're talking about the character traits of God that when His Spirit comes in to those who are His children, starts to contagiously start forming in you. If God's Spirit is in you, if you think that God's Spirit can come in you and it won't change you, you're wrong. If God's Spirit comes into you, it's going to start contagiously transforming you into the good character of God's good character. What does that look like? And when we think about peacemaking, when we think about forgiveness, think about how much these character traits help us to do that. Because the Spirit produces in those who are God's children love, joy, peace, forbearance. We don't use the word forbearance very often. Uh, it would be kind of like putting up withness. Peace is great, but sometimes in between conflict and peace, we need some put up withness. And the Spirit gives us that. And you know, you know why the Spirit gives us that? Because God's got a lot of put up withness with us in the past, doesn't He? And if He can do it with us, He wants us to do it with others. Forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Walking in the Spirit leads us in these character traits of, of peace and forgiveness and putting up with each other. Walking in the way of the world puts us in our desires, our passions, our desires, and we end up with envy and strife. There's a choice here. The peacemaking choice requires the work of the Spirit working in you and on you and through you to change you so that you can get rid of the limits of who you're making peace with. And not to keep your peace here, but send it there. The Jesus way. 
So here's the Peacemaker's Pledge, and this kind of finishes this three-week series, and you can either take this pledge to heart or not. The Peacemaker's Pledge is this, to see every conflict as an opportunity to grow in our Christ-likeness. To see every conflict as an opportunity to grow in our relationship with Christ. And to see every conflict as an opportunity to grow in our relationship with others. We so often want to run away from the enemies, to hide from those who wish harm on us. Peacemakers commit to seeing conflict as an opportunity to grow in our Christ-likeness, in our relationship with Christ, and in our relationship with others. It's an opportunity to be strengthened, an opportunity to be transformed. And it's not easy work, but God's working in it. If you're willing to biblically approach the conflict in ways that move it from uh, where it is now to healthy and healed with forgiveness and ownership and a stronger relationship than when you went through it. Will you take the pledge? Will you become a kingdom maker, a peacemaker, someone that's bringing salt and light into the world? Because listen, the way this is going to happen is not going to be through someone passing a bill to make everyone get along with each other. The way this is going to happen is not going to be from someone uh, giving a great speech that America just kind of goes, boy, that's right, we should get along with people we don't agree with. The way that this is going to happen is the only way the kingdom of God has ever broken into this world. One person making one choice to choose peace instead of anger. One person making one choice when their friend is angry to say, I understand that you're angry. I've chosen peace even in the midst of a conflict-riddled world. And that person might say, wow, I think I'll do that too. Jesus thought it would work that we would become salt, and that we would become light. And as the Spirit contagiously produces God's character in us, that we have the opportunity to contagiously send it into our homes, into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, into our communities, into the interwebs, and everywhere out there that enemies exist, that your salt and your light can glorify God and change the world to look like His kingdom and not like this broken, anxious, angry world. But it starts with a choice and a commitment. Will you make that commitment this week to become a peacemaker? Let's stand and have an invitation song. I need
We continue to be blessed by those who have been touched by the word. This morning, Rosario Davis comes wanting to put her Lord on in baptism. We'll go ahead and let her and Jackie go prepare for that now, as will Kent. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for sending your message through someone as gentle as Kent Brown. I know I've heard sermons on these very subjects before where you end up wishing you'd wore steel-toed boots to worship, but not that way here at Northwest. Thank God for blessing us with this man in the pulpit. And if you want to know just how big effect his sermon will have, check later today and see if his uncle David Casling prayed blessings for the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> On a serious note, we do have prayer requests this morning. Aiden Spruill asked us to pray for his second cousin, Reagan Thomas, who can't feel anything from the waist down and is currently paralyzed. We definitely want to pray about that. Jimmy Keyes asked that we pray for his surgery this Wednesday on his eye. Hopeful for a positive outcome there. We are asked to continue to pray for our brother, Jim Brumbaugh, and his family, his mother Helen, passed away this Friday in New Jersey. Jim, our hearts are with you. Also, some of you may remember former members Jim and Hannah Hoffmeister, who attended here uh, years ago. Jim often led singing here in our worship. They currently live in the Broken Arrow area. Jim has had a long bout with cancer, and he passed away this past Wednesday. Services are pending. We want to keep the Hoffmeisters in our prayers as well. Let's go to God on behalf of all of these. Lord, we thank you for touching the heart of Rosario this morning, and she has decided that she wants to follow Jesus and obey his gospel. Dear Lord, we thank you for the message we have heard. Help us realize that in our eyes sometimes those we have labeled as enemies or adversaries are not that at all. Take the plank out of our eyes, Lord, so that we may see that they can truly be not just friends, but even brothers and sisters. Amen. Help us, Lord, in this effort. Guide us always. God, we pray special prayer at this time for Reagan Thomas, who is dealing with paralysis, and we pray that this may only be temporary, that something may be done to bring him his full function back in his body. Lord, for Jimmy Keyes, as he has eye surgery this week, we pray that that will go well, that 
your hand will be with the doctors and that it may improve his sight. Lord, we pray for our brother Bill Oden, who had a setback this week and now is going to be a little longer in rehab than originally planned. Dear Lord, bring him along and, and help his body heal as well. Dear God, for Jim and his family, for the Hoffmeister family, for these who have lost loved ones in their life, we ask that you would use us to be their comfort, Amen. to soothe their hurting, to let them know that you feel their pain and you care about them. We thank you, Lord, that they are children of yours and that they have you and your body to turn to at times like this. Thank you for blessing us this day, dear God, with this assembly and with the presence of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.